This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. This is CKNW Mornings. We're at war and they want to they want to shut things down with their closest ally in the, in the world. That's unacceptable. That's Ontario Premier Doug Ford clearly very unhappy and upset with the news that we heard on Friday that U.S. President Donald Trump was trying to restrict the company 3M from shipping and some personal protective equipment and more to Canada. And that wasn't exactly the tone that we heard out of Ottawa, though. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has said the federal government will not retaliate and they continue to talk to their American partners about this. But let's get an update on the situation. Has this strained relations? Joining us now, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson. Good morning, Mercedes. Good morning. There is a definite difference in the tone between some of the premiers who really spoke out about this versus the Trudeau government, isn't there? There is. And, and, you know, to be fair, um, the government has to be a little bit thoughtful of how they're speaking out about this at the federal level, because you've seen how Donald Trump can react, right? When you have a situation where uh, there, there's something provoked publicly, uh, if he can look like he's coming out of it with a win, uh, i.e. the question we had about the potential of U.S. troops near the Canadian border and the way that that was handled. Uh, government spoke out strongly, but very carefully about that. And I think you see them trying to do the same thing here. They're trying to say, look, it's still open. We're still dialoguing to not look like they're taking a hard position uh, that could potentially inflame Trump. But at the same time, they're being very clear and they're trying to appeal. Um, and listen to the language they're using, because they keep talking about the U.S. national interest and the Canadian national interest. That's not language that's being picked up randomly. If you look at the Production Act, and we know this because the White House uh, gave this information to Global News, uh, and it's, it's publicly available, that it doesn't affect the export of masks to places that would be in the U.S. national interest. It would not stop uh, the export of masks that would in some way be helpful to the U.S. And that's the argument the government is making. Look, it is not helpful. It is not in the U.S. national interest to have this epidemic spreading through Canada because we don't have the masks that we need to be able to protect frontline healthcare workers. That affects the U.S. economically. It could affect them health-wise. It could affect them socially and in a lot of other ways. Uh, And so I think you're seeing them try to make that argument very strongly behind the scenes to say, look, Canada should be the exception here. Canada should be considered. I mean, we heard on Friday the president say that he thought that Italy and Spain, you know, countries that were already in line and, and really are having a difficult time, would still qualify for these masks because there is that clause with the U.S. national interest. Um, so I think that, that that at this point is the plan. But it's also not the only tension in the relationship, Simi, because right now mm-hmm. there are Ontario cities banning healthcare workers from going back and forth to work on both sides of the border. So look for that debate to start to heat up too as the day goes on. Wow, okay. And I know that the Trump administration has kind of, other members have suggested that Canada is not included in this. I know Peter Navarro, uh, one of the president's assistants on trade, had talked about this, uh, but we don't have any actual proof, right? Or they haven't said solidly. The president hasn't said, no, no, not Canada. He he's, he's sort of talked around this, and he made it really clear he was unhappy with 3M for pushing back. Um, but then he said, you know, countries that really needed, which at this point is not Canada, we're not in the dire straits that um, 
for example, Italy and Spain are at this very moment, the concern is we don't want to go there, right? We don't mm-hmm. want to end up in that situation. Um, so they're certainly working very hard behind the scenes to try to ensure that Canada gets an exception here to make that argument that Canada always makes with the U.S. You know, we're, we're a very close ally and friend. We're different than other countries. Uh, we should be held sort of to a different standard and have different levels of access. Um, and, you know, as the Prime Minister pointed out, and as we were talking about with the workers crossing the border, the benefits of, of providing for health care aren't just flowing from the United States into Canada. Those are Canadian nurses working in Detroit uh, in hospitals that are being overwhelmed. And so, you know, there is the stick there, too, that they can say, well, don't make us go there. If we have to retaliate, we can. The Prime Minister said he does not want to do that. He wants to talk about it. That's usually the best way to keep things open with Donald Trump. Um, but obviously, they're hoping it doesn't escalate to that yeah. point and that they can talk their way through this. Okay, and what else is happening in Ottawa this week? Is this the week that Parliament comes back sort of, to pass a few things? <laughs> well, they're trying to figure out what it's going to look like yeah. when it comes back. Because remember, we've talked about this, that um, you want that democratic accountability and oversight, but it's a pandemic, and unlike the world wars which Parliament sat through, you, know, you can't catch a world war. You can catch uh, COVID-19. So they're trying to find a way forward, and there's sort of two options, well, technically three for how you can do it. One is the normal option. A lot of people think that's not appealing. It's too many people traveling, sitting too close together. You can't maintain social distancing. Option number two is that you do what we saw when they passed that $82 billion aid package, and each uh, party agrees to send a certain limited number of MPs that represents their overall proportion in Parliament. The issue is some MPs may not listen to their whips on this because they want to be there and they want to sit. The third option is the possibility of a virtual sitting. This has never been done before. Uh, It's very controversial with MPs, but they started doing it with committees now. Uh, the Finance Committee and the Health Committee have both met virtually. So there's talk about perhaps they could meet virtually as the House of Commons and do it that way and vote that way and have everybody still participating, but not have them physically near each other. Oh, well, we live in interesting times. Mercedes, thank you. Thank you. This is CKNW Mornings. You'll be able to sign up to receive this support by going to Canada.ca. If you choose to direct deposit, you will get a first payment within three to five days. If you choose to receive your benefit by mail, you'll get money within the next 10 days. All right, that was Prime Minister Trudeau a couple of weeks ago when he first announced the Canada Emergency Response Benefit to help people who have been deeply financially impacted by what's going on with COVID-19. Well, today is the day that the new benefit application process opens up, so you can apply online. But there are some things that you need to know before you actually start doing that. So we're joined now by the Federal Minister of Employment, Workforce Development and Disability Inclusion, Carla Qualtro, for more on this. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Tell me, can you give us an idea of what it has been like behind the scenes here and getting a portal like this up and running in just a few short weeks? Well, you can imagine how, uh, what a Herculean effort our public servants have put into creating an entire program, uh, building an entire system um, where none existed before. Now, the nice thing is, is we had the CRA um, infrastructure to kind of lean on because CRA is used to processing millions of checks and, and applications every month because they deliver things like the CCB, like your tax refunds. So we had the, we had the machine power to do this. We just had to design a program around it that was as simple and straightforward as po- possible to make sure it worked. 
Okay, so then what do people need to know? They're obviously, they're going to be looking, they want to start applying, they want to start getting that money, but what do they need to know? What Canadians need to know, first of all, is that we're asking people to apply over the next four days, depending on your month of birth, primarily to give the system a little bit of, um, you know, almost like planking the curve on the system, if you will, to make sure that we get information and data into the system in a more streamlined way. Now, the system could handle the capacity in one day. It would just be slower. So we're, you know, taking extra caution um, to make sure that everybody gets their data in. You have to have a SIN number. You have to declare that you earn $5,000 in income in the past year. And you have to affirm that you are not working for COVID reasons. If that is the case, you'll get a direct deposit within three days and a check within 10 days for the whole $2,000 for the next four weeks. All right. Now, does that mean that you can't be making any kind of money? Like even if you had multiple jobs and let's say you lost one of them, but you still have one, can you still get this benefit? Yes. No. So the benefit is designed for people who are not working. So if your income has been reduced at zero because of COVID, you're off work, you've been laid off, you're taking care of a child who's not in school, you're taking care of a loved one who's sick, you yourself are sick. Um, It's for any worker. So self-employed, Um, contractors, people with multiple jobs. But if you have another source of employment income, um, moving forward, you cannot, uh, you will not be eligible for this benefit, which we recognize is a major gap in the system for sure. Okay. Is there anything being done to work on that then? We are absolutely. So the first goal for us was to make sure we, we got money into the pockets of everyone we could as soon as possible. And now having lived with this system for two weeks, we're trying to determine the way to support people um, perhaps who aren't working because of COVID but didn't lose their jobs. So that would be students. Coming up in May, students are used yeah. to and relying on four months of income. So what can we do for students? Well, the first thing we've already done is relieve them of the obligation to pay their student loan debt off every month without interest. Um, we're hoping that the wage subsidy that the Minister of Finance uh, is, is working the details of off of now will complement the CERB in a way that people will continue to, to, to keep people on their payroll because they're getting 75% of the salary. We're, we're, we're anticipating that to include students. So if you had a, a job as an intern, for example, you could continue to keep that job because we're going to pay 75% of that salary. Um, we're looking at other creative ways to deal with a number of pe- situations of people who aren't working. Um, but the, the reality is there's going to be millions of Canadians that are going to be supported by this. So we've already had two and a half million Canadians apply through EI and we'll be getting this benefit. I'm pleased to um, advise that we've processed 2.2 million of those applications already. So in the next couple of days, 2.2 million Canadians are going to be getting the CERB through their applications through EI. And we're expecting uh, millions of Canadians to apply in the next couple of days, the next, the next weeks, you know, in the com- upcoming days. The point being that five, six million Canadians will be getting money in their pockets within the next week because of these this benefit. Right, but we should point out here that the, when you apply depends on the month in which you were born. Yes, and that's, that's what we're asking people. Yeah. I mean, the system won't kick you out if you apply in the, in, on the wrong day, but today we're asking, we're, we're asking people January, February, March, tomorrow, April, May, June, Wednesday, July, August, September, Thursday, October, November, December just to kind of streamline it from a processing point of view. And quite frankly, for people who want to, you know, need some help applying and want to call in, we've set up a call center over the weekend of a thousand people are now on a call center ready to answer people's questions. But people are going to have to be patient because there is going to be a wait. Millions of people need help right now. Right. Okay. So then the best thing to do is to make sure if you haven't already done so that you're hooked up for direct deposit through the Canada Revenue Agency. 
Yeah, get a CRA account. Uh, I mean, most Canadians have one because we file taxes. Um, a My Service Canada account will work. You can apply through an automated process as well through CRA. Um, and then, of course, there's the fallback of in-person support through Service Canada. But like I said, that's the one you're going to have to be a bit patient on. We just, we just, there's so many people. Okay, and you talked about the grad, uh, the students then who usually have this yeah. summer job for four months. Uh, if Now, is that a job that they haven't yet gotten? Like, what if they're returning to a job that they have every year? Well, if you have lost a job, so... It, you already the had the job, written, yeah. Yeah, if, then if you've ceased work or you stopped, stopped working for COVID reasons, you can apply to this. And and so if you, you know, it, it wasn't intended to make, uh, to cover the person who isn't working. It's very much an employment income right. replacement program. So if you've lost employment income and now, you know, for COVID reasons, you can apply for this. Right. Okay, then for the students then, those, you're hoping to use the wage subsidy to create some jobs for them to have this summer. Or to keep their jobs, right? We also have Canada Summer Jobs, which is a seventy thousand um, job placement through the government of Canada that we're, we're currently retooling um, in order to still have jobs available for students this summer. But at the end of the day, we know the anxiety that students are feeling right now, and we're doing our best. The, you know, in this second wave of support, we're looking at targeted groups who maybe don't have access or eligibility right now. But you know, the first priority was to get as much as many people covered as quickly as possible. And that required a kind of a streamlined blanketed approach. And now we're, now we're working on the people who aren't covered. All right. Thank you very much for your time on this today. My pleasure. And please keep safe. You too. That's Carla Qualtrill, the Federal Minister of Employment, Workforce Development and Disability Inclusion, walking us through the portal opening this morning for the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, uh, known as CERB. That means if you have lost your job, if you're self-employed, you don't necessarily qualify for EI, uh, and because of COVID-19, you find yourself financially strapped now without a job, this is the benefit program for you. So go online to their website. I checked it out this morning seemed smooth and fine. I actually am very impressed that a government, any government, got this up and running so quickly and it is thorough. In fact, Cameron just wrote me this morning and said, I got up at three, he said, when the portal opened. I must say they did an excellent job on this, Cameron says. Application was easy, smooth and quick. He said, very well done, Canada. Let's hope it is that process, Cameron, for everybody. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. And remember, check the website. The month that you were born uh, will determine kind of what day is best for you to apply. All of that information is on there. Just make sure that when you're applying, it is a Government of Canada website that you are applying through. We don't want to be hearing about any scams when it comes to CERB. We want to make sure everybody gets the money that they need. This is CKNW Mornings. You know, I received quite a few emails over the weekend uh, talking about people who seem to be breaking the social or physical distancing rules. This happens every time the weather is nice. This weekend, of course, was no exception. So I get emails from people saying, I saw this and I'm concerned. I saw this and I was angry. But what do you do when you see someone clearly violating those rules? Do you just, you know, kind of keep it inside and email me with your anger? Do you say something? What if there are extenuating circumstances? And yes, there can be extenuating circumstances. To talk more about that now, we are joined by a Vancouver Island mom who was publicly shamed for taking her kids to the grocery store with her. Janine Walker is with us. Good morning, Janine. 
Good morning. Now tell me what happened. Tell me the story. Um, okay, well, first we had gone out, and uh, my husband's deployed, so it's just me and the kids. No family here. Um, so I have a six-year-old and a two-year-old. We hadn't left the house in about five days, but we were getting pretty desperate for some essentials, and I didn't uh, want to ask anyone to go get it because I needed, like, a pretty big shop. And also, um, we couldn't get a spot for about a week and a half on the online ordering list. So I thought, okay, I'll take the kids. Um, Before we even got out of the vehicle, um, I was just getting my daughter out, and a man drove by and screamed out the car at me, something to the effect of, keep your kids in the house, for Christ's sake. And I thought, oh, my goodness. So... Anyway, we get in the store, and then another man in the store at the deli counter was already having an altercation with another woman who was shopping on her own. I believe it was because he felt she was maybe too close to him, although I didn't see Mm. if she was. Um, And then when she walked away in tears, he looked up and I was there, so he turned it on to me and started yelling and calling me shitty mom. (laughs) What do you do, Janine? Like when people say that, like, are you in shock or do you respond? Do you say to them, listen, I have no choice? Yeah, I, I did. I spoke back and said, you know, my husband is deployed and I don't really have a choice right now. And um, he said, I don't care. There's volunteer- volunteers for that. And I said, well, actually, the volunteers are more for uh, people who are immunocompromised or the elderly or people who are in quarantine right now. We are none of those things. And um, I'm actually not breaking any rules right now. There's no rules. At least that was a week and a half ago. There were no orders or rules saying that you could not bring your children with you as long as you're following, you know, precautions and social distancing. My daughter was strapped in the cart and my son was holding on to the side of it. They were not running around or anything. Okay. And so you've had two people say something. Was that it or was there more? There was just the two, That's enough. but it happened in the same, like it, within an hour of each other. Um, and then he and I, the second guy, we ended up getting, you know, exchanging words because I wasn't going to let someone talk to me like that in front of my kids. And um, it was interesting, though, because there were a number of people around and everyone just stood there. Nobody said anything. And I thought that was really interesting, too, that nobody kind of said, hey, you know, stop verbally attacking women in the grocery store. <laughs> so nobody, nobody nobody came to your defense at all. Did you think it was a tense situation? You know, did people feel really nervous? Did you get that vibe? I think that, yeah, maybe they felt nervous or weren't sure what what exactly had gone on. Even one of the store employees came up because this had now spilled over to near the tills. And I just said to him, look go talk to the woman working at the deli. She just witnessed the whole thing. You don't need to take my word or this man's word for it because I'm sure they weren't positive exactly what had happened. Mm-hmm. But he, the store worker just kind of stood there like looking stunned and um, we ended up paying. And when we got out to our vehicle, of course, this man was parked near us. So it kept going on. And then a few people who had been in the store came out and, and yelled at him, like, get out of here, go away, leave her alone. And then they said to me, you know, we're really proud of you for standing up to him. And it was really nice that they said that. But at the same time, I thought it would have been nice if you had said it in the store right. when it was happening. How about your kids? How did they deal with this? 
Um, well, my daughter's only two, so she didn't really seem affected at all. My son was a little more when we got in the car. He said, um, are you okay, mommy? And I started to cry then. I had kept it together, and I started to cry. And he said, is this the worst day of your life? Oh. And I said, no, baby. I wouldn't let someone like that give me the worst day of my life. Don't you worry. Um, but, you know, he was just more concerned that I was upset and he knows that I'm under stress and we had talked a lot before we went about taking precautions. So I think he was also confused about why when he was doing all the things I asked him to do, why was, you know, his mom getting yelled at for it. So Jane, what advice do you have to people? Because I, like I was saying earlier, I I do get a lot of messages from people saying, I see this and I see Mm -hmm. people doing this and they're not obeying the rules. What advice do you have? Because for a lot of people, they're doing this out of concern, but then others obviously take it too far, like those right. men that accosted you at the grocery store. Yeah, well, um, I mean, I guess for for the the actual like single parents, solo parents, people who um, are in that situation, since a week and a half ago, I've had so many people reach out to me, and there are a lot more resources available even now this week than there were last week because. Uh, people were still getting organized and they were trying to figure out who do we need to be helping. So at first they were focused on the more vulnerable and elderly and now they're realizing single parents, solo parents need that help as well. So reach out, you know, try to find help within the community so that you don't have to bring your kids would be my um, first piece of advice. And then for the people who are thinking, you know, of shaming people or saying something, think about it. You don't know exactly what's going on with someone Um, Even for me, some of the other options that have been suggested, like leaving my kids in the vehicle, I'm not going to do that. Or having someone stand near the vehicle and watch them. Well, my son has severe separation anxiety from me. There's no way he'd allow that. So it doesn't work for everybody. And so before you think you know, don't judge, don't say anything. Maybe if you're that concerned, offer help instead of harsh words. You know, hey, I see you're with your kids. Could I go in and grab your items for you? Um, Help that mother get to the front of the line so that she can get out of the store quicker. Things like that. Um, And also, don't be calling people names and stuff in front of their children. That's not okay either. Um, But yeah, I just think that in these times, we need to band together and be helping each other and supporting one another. It says a lot more about us when, you know, when we show kindness and compassion than when we attack people, especially when we don't know the full picture. Janine, that is so true. Listen, thanks so much for telling your story to us this morning. Thanks for listening. And I hope you get the help that you need uh, so you don't have to take the kids to the grocery store again. Uh, that is Janine Walker, a mother from Souk over on Vancouver Island, talking about the story of how she took the kids to the grocery store with her, had no choice. Her husband's deployed. He's in the military. And of course, because of all the rules, getting a babysitter or somebody to come over and help her out just was not possible that day. And she really needed to go grocery shopping. And she was uh, yelled at not once, but twice at the grocery store by people. This is CKNW Mornings. You know, we're all adjusting to self-isolation at home, right? Took some time after that initial shock wore off about how quickly everything changed in our lives. I mean, within a week, everything had been upended. 
jobs, uh, you know, hobbies, sports, TV, like you name it, every, every part of your life has been touched by this thing. So yes, we were taken aback by this, but there is a group of people out there who weren't as surprised as the rest of us. And these would be some of the experts on infectious diseases who saw this coming way back. We wanted to talk more about that now. Joining us, Saverio Stranges, who's a professor and chair in the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at Western University. Thank you for being with us this morning. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for the opportunity. So how is it? So when this started to happen, when you saw this COVID-19 situation unfolding, Saverio, were you surprised? I was not, unfortunately. And uh, the, the reasons for that are, you know, a um, couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, I'm Italian. So I have an Italian background, and obviously, as you understand, with the start of the outbreak in Italy, I've been fully immersed in these emergencies, although from remotely from Canada, by interacting with colleagues, uh, epidemiologists, public health, uh, people in Italy, also with my friends or relatives. So in a sense, you know, I was already um, ready, and, and also my mindset uh, was already set to, in a sense, uh, uh, prepare for the potential wave happening in North America. And the second reason, uh, we organized a forum at Western University in uh, London, Ontario, uh, beginning of February, when the situation was still relatively calm. And, you know, there was this idea that this was only a problem of Wuhan or Hubei province in China. Mm -hmm. And in that particular forum, we made it clear that, you know, what happens nowadays in, uh, in Wuhan or China in, a, in a such interconnected world may have implications also on uh, on a global scale. So in a sense, epidemiology and public health experts have not really been surprised by the uh, global uh, dimension of this of these epidemic. And how would you assess our preparedness and readiness for something like this? It must be frustrating for people in your line of work because you have been warning the public, right, that this could happen. That's correct. And, and I think, you know, this, is, this has been a problem in general for, for Western countries, I would say. Uh, not just for Canada or Italy, uh, that, you know, it seems that our systems and our level of uh, preparedness for, especially for, for new pandemics, obviously is not uh, such that, you know, we, we have a strong uh, community of public health infrastructure in place to necessarily tackle these new uh, pandemics. And I, I, I will say that there is a lot of, that we can learn from Asian countries uh, we have countries like, for example, South Korea or Taiwan, uh, which have been able really to curb these epidemics at very early stage with proactive uh, contact tracing, for example, or even with, you know, uh, data analytics and, uh, and apps. So really using technologies to actively trace contacts. And again, some of these infrastructures may not be necessarily present in Western countries. So we just need to acknowledge uh, uh, about you know these gaps uh, in our in our countries, and also think for the future how can we structure our public health infrastructure in a way that we can we can tackle these pandemics or these new outbreaks in a more timely and efficient fashion. You have multiple times now said pandemics as in plural, so you feel there's probably more coming. Well, you know we are not sure about that, but obviously you know with with this high chance of anthropozoonosis, uh, as in, uh, in, in the case of uh, COVID-19, I think we just need to uh, um, be aware that, you know, new pandemics may actually uh, happen also in the future. And that's, and that's why I will reiterate the need 
for uh, revisit our uh, our health systems or in particular the public health infra- infrastructure in western countries so that we can be ready for for potential new uh, pandemics in the future Oh, and, and is this something that we have dealt with in the past? Like, you know, we, we heard about SARS and we know what an impact that had. And yet we still were not completely prepared for this one. Are we going to be, do you think, better prepared in the future? I think this has been really uh, a huge, a huge event. I will, I, will, I will compare this to the Spanish flu, uh, which happened just a century ago. Uh, you know, SARS was relatively contained in hospital settings. The community spread of uh, of the new coronavirus has been such that you know uh, uh, was never uh, ex- was never observed in the last I will say in the last century. So I I feel that you know there are many lessons to be learned from this pandemic, and you know I'm confident that our our countries our health systems will uh, will address some of the gaps I've uh, you know I've outlined in them in, in these in these interviews. So. And, you know, as, as, a, as a public health physician myself or a chair of epidemiology, I will make sure myself that, for example, we boost our capacity in, in terms of infectious disease, epidemiology and, and surveillance, also in terms of the research we do. Yeah, so what do we need moving forward? What do we need to keep doing, including the public, uh, to deal with situations like this? Well, in terms of the public, obviously, you know, as everyone knows at this point, the social uh, physical distancing measures are extremely crucial um, in this stage, uh, also because they are the only options we have at the moment to contain the community spread so that you know, the hospital systems uh, does not get overwhelmed as it happened, for example, in Italy or Spain and now in France and in England. So in terms of you know, the Canadian context, they think, it's extremely important that we, we, we contain the community spread as much as we can with, with the social distancing. And, 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 and possibly, you know, we will go through different phases of this uh, uh, pandemic. There will be a phase two where we will need to survive with the virus. At the end of the day, I think until we get uh, a vaccine, you know, we will need to uh, uh, deal with this uh, pandemic, uh, you know, for the time being. All right, listen, Severio, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. This is CKNW Mornings. You know, this is undoubtedly a very stressful, tough time, anxiety-ridden for so many people out there. Your day-to-day life has completely been upended. You might not have a job to go to. You're worried about how to pay your bills. And on top of that, you are now right next to that person that you are in a relationship with all the time. For some people, that's great. For others, maybe not. There might be some tension there now that everybody seems to be together all the time. It is causing strain on quite a few relationships out there. That's why our Nikki Reitmeyer spoke to Dr. Michael Regev, who's a registered psychologist and marriage and family therapist. Couples are really struggling to maintain their their relationship, their loving relationship, their close relationship, because they're so busy with all the tasks and the kids and work and trying to balance everything and the worries, and especially if they have financial worries. But, you know, even if just for 10 or 15 minutes at the end of each day, you just sit down or lie down together and connect and just thanking each other for the day and cuddling together 
and having sex if you are into it, if everybody is consensual. Sex is a, a great healer of relationships and actually improves your immune system. I don't know if you know that. So highly recommend it. Our listeners will be relieved to hear it. (laughs) So what about for a couple that is just finding themselves not connecting very well right now, they're bickering a lot, and arguments are starting to brew? What kind of tips would you have for a couple like that? Something that's really practical, a really usable tip that they can apply in order to avoid a big argument? The first good advice is put some mechanisms in place so that you don't get to such a heated place where you're not controlling yourself very well and then you cause some damage to the relationship, maybe to kids who witness it and then you regret it and then it's hard to come back from that. But if you do find yourself in a heated argument, I think the best thing to do would be to take a deep breath and take a break. It's okay to say, you know what, this is going to a place that we don't want to go And we need to stop right now and take it back, pick it up at a later time. When people calm down and where kids are not around and you can think uh, and you can control what comes out of your mouth. And I know that sometimes when we fight, it's, you know, it's back and forth and it's back and forth and you did this and you did that. But we don't actually hear each other. We're not actually listening to what the other person is saying. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. And what I say to couples is that when they are fighting, they have to listen with a curious ear rather than with a rebuttal in their head. So, you know, don't think of your fight uh, like a court litigation case uh, where you're just listening so that you can rebuttal your opponent, but listen with curiosity so that you understand, you try to understand where your partner is coming from and what's going on for them. And once you have that switch from fighting to curiosity, a genuine curiosity to know what the other person is going through, because we're all struggling, we're all going through something new and scary and uncomfortable. So we really don't know what's going on for our partner unless we listen very carefully, unless we encourage them to tell us. Mm, Okay. I want to ask you about a specific example that I heard recently. It was a a woman, but I mean, this could go either way. It doesn't have to just be the the male or the female or whoever. Uh, But she was saying that she felt as though there was an expectation that even though both she and her husband are now working from home, thankfully have been able to keep their jobs, that she would be the primary caretaker of the children as well. And she's kind of going, hold on a second here. You know, I have to get all my work done too. I can't take care of the kids as a full-time job on top of that. What would you say to couples who are having uh, an issue right now with balancing childcare and work and perhaps those responsibilities sort of falling more onto one spouse than the other? I would try to figure out whose expectation it is. Is it his expectation? Is it her expectation? Have they discussed the new situation with one another? It's so important to sit down together. And I know that people have been flying by the seat of their pants, but people have to stop for a moment and just sit down, uh, maybe once the kids are in bed, and discuss their expectations and the new situation Frankly, if this is the situation where she has to keep a full-time job and he has to keep a full-time job and they have young kids uh, in the home, it's not a realistic expectation of anyone to be the child care taker uh, full-time as well. It just is not realistic. 
you probably have heard of the phrase, something's got to give. And I just heard from one mother, you know, how parents try to limit kids' screen time. And she said, I just decided to limit screen time to 24-7. It's not necessarily that I condone this, but something's got to give. It just goes to tell you that we need new rules for the game. This is a completely new game that we are facing right now, and we need new rules. Dr. Regev, my last question for you is about couples who are perhaps struggling with alcohol consumption in the relationship. Maybe one spouse is finding that the other is drinking too much. Or, in contrast, perhaps the spouse who's listening to this right now is going, yeah, my partner is always telling me that I drink too much and it makes me crazy. How can couples have a productive and respectful conversation about alcohol consumption without it turning into a big fight? Mm -hmm. You know, I think, first of all, it's a really important topic. And with regards to telling your partner they're drinking too much, I wouldn't start there because nobody likes to be told and nobody likes their partner to become their parent, of course. Checking in with your partner would be more important than reflecting to them that they're drinking too much. What's going on for you would be the first thing that I would ask rather than you're drinking too much and you need to stop. Yeah, right, right. So kindly and respectfully trying to get to the root of the behavior as opposed to just jumping in with an accusation right off the bat. Exactly. And it's good for every day and always and not just in these weird and trying times. This is CKNW Mornings. Well, if there's one big thing that COVID-19, I think, has taken away from everybody in our recreational time, not our work time, and that is the ability to kind of watch sports, enjoy sports, play sports together with other people. But even though that happened, sure seems like people are finding a way to actually still participate. So there's four women, including two Canadians, who just competed in the first ever Ironman VR Pro Challenge. Yes, that is an online virtual bike race. So technology is now allowing these athletes to compete while staying at home. But of course, this was an inaugural event, which means there were a few hiccups. Our Nikki Reitmeyer explains. As you know, most sporting events have been cancelled because of COVID-19. But with a few innovations, thanks to technology, some events have been able to proceed. I'm watching women gear down, get up out of the saddle. This is it, Didi. I love it. Yeah, different strategies here. We've got Jocelyn out of the saddle. Uh, we had Angela up and down. Jeannie what you're hearing is the sounds of the very first ever virtual Ironman race. It's called the Ironman VR1. On Saturday, April 4th, four professional female athletes from around the world competed against each other for the cycling portion of the race. There was no road that they were racing down, no fans cheering them on. No, they did the race from their own homes on stationary bikes. Angela Nath was one of those four competitors. That is some pain, ladies and gentlemen. She looks like she's in pain, but knowing the kind of competitor Angela is, she's loving this pain right now. It was very, very different than outside racing, and it was definitely needed during this time, so I had a blast. Representing Canada in the race, Angela is originally from Prince George, B.C. Grew up there. 
My family still lives up there. I went to school in the States in Columbia, Missouri, went back to BC and lived in Penticton for a bit. And then I got the triathlon bug and basically just lived all over the U.S. But now I'm based outside of Boston. As a professional athlete, she said it's been tough having so many upcoming events recently canceled. You know, the triathlon community is is amazing. I love it. And for us to not be able to connect with each other at the races or, or in training or anything like that is, is hard. You know, it, you take that away and you take away part of what you really love in life. And so this was just a fantastic opportunity. There's no races on the horizon anytime soon. And so to be able to just jump in and try to go as hard as I can, I mean, it just felt great. <laughs> if you're still trying to imagine how a virtual race works, Angela explained a little bit more. Yeah, so Ironman is typically a swim bike run portion, but because of everything that's happening around the world and all the races being canceled, they wanted to create some type of virtual event. And so they decided to do a duathlon. So part of it was participating in the race. And we did a five kilometer run and then a 90K bike and then a half marathon at the end. And you could do it at any time you wanted. It started on Friday and ends today, which is a Sunday. The portion that was the actual race for the professionals was the bike portion, because that's something that they could put out live. We're downstairs in our basements or workout rooms, and we're able to kind of race each other on a virtual course. And so the course itself was 90 kilometers, and uh, it took a long time. <laughs> and it was basically an all-out effort, but it was, it was such a blast. She said herself and her three competitors were hooked up to microphones. The whole thing was being streamed live on Facebook. After more than two grueling hours and 40 minutes, Angela finished second, about a minute and a half behind the American competitor. Fellow Canadian Jeannie Seymour finished third. As far as the last place competitor goes, well, there's actually a story there, too. So the woman who finished in fourth, her name is Marinda Carfrey, and she's from Australia. Remember, these athletes are competing from home on bikes that are hooked up to an online system. At one point, she was in second place, pedaling hard. But then her husband walked into the room, tripped on the cord that was plugged into her bike, and she was knocked offline. And he walks around the back. He kicked out the plug. Oh, what an idiot. <laughs> I just laughed. I mean, things like that can happen anytime when you're doing an indoor workout, but to have it on your first race indoors, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was pretty funny. So that's how the very first ever virtual Ironman race went. As for Angela, since she didn't get to stand on the podium... She said that she thinks Iron Man is sending a medal and a t-shirt in the mail. For 980 CKNW, I'm Nikki Reitmeyer.